Welcome to IABTI Blast, the podcast for bomb technicians and investigators. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the IABTI Blast, IABTI's podcast for the benefit of our membership. This is Bob Bullen, your current international director. Uh, I'm also your moderator for this podcast about storing explosives. And we're coming to you from the ATF National Center for Explosives Training and Research, located on the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. So I'm uh, very excited to have that you've, you're going to listen in on this program. I'm thrilled we're now utilizing these podcasts to bring relevant uh, information to our membership. Uh, and I really feel good about today's topic, which is uh, how explosive storage handling and record keeping impact public safety agencies, uh, such as police and fire department bomb squads and other entities like SWAT and uh, canine handlers. Anyone that uses explosives is part of their public safety mission. On a side note, most of you know me know that I wear another hat in our community, and that is of an ATF supervisory special agent. I'm also a certified explosive specialist and in my 29th year with ATF. And for about 15 of those years, um, I was responsible for explosive storage magazines. And I can tell you from my personal experience that being responsible for the proper storage and handling of explosives and keeping records uh, could be very time consuming, but my agency required it, so I had no choice, I had to do it. I was fortunate to never experience a loss or theft from these magazines, Uh, but I can tell you there was more than one occasion where I had to scramble to account for explosives product, and that is not a pleasant feeling at all. Um, I definitely had to be diligent in my record keeping, and and it is something you gotta stay on top of. So because I work with ATF, and ATF, of course, is the agency with regulatory authority over proper explosive storage and record keeping, I was fortunate to be the recipient of some related training in this area as part of my job. Uh, And also, I have easy access to the folks who enforce these laws and regulations. So most of the time, I know that's not always the case with individuals who get tasked with the storage of explosives. They get no training. uh, They get really no guidance on how to do that. So working for ATF also meant, you know, I didn't have to look far to bring together some people that know something about this. And that's the, that's what our program is today about explosive storage. So with me today, I have uh, Haley McGrew, who currently serves as a program manager here at NCEDAR over the advanced explosives training for industry operations investigators training course. So welcome Haley to our program and Also with me today is Michael Olina, who currently serves as a program manager over the ATF Explosives Industry Programs Branch. Uh, Welcome to you, Michael, as well. And rounding out our panel is uh, Nick Concolino, longtime bomb squad commander of the Yellow County Bomb Squad in California. Nick's also a retired police captain with the Davis, California Police Department, and he's a current part-time West Sacramento, California police officer. And in addition to all that, Nick is an instructor here at NCEDAR for the Advanced Explosive Disposal Techniques course, and he routinely teaches about this very topic to bomb techs from around the United States. So welcome, Nick. And so before we start with our panelists, uh, I'd like to briefly mention some information I just recently received from the U.S. Bomb Data Center uh, related to this topic. In the past five years, there have been 487 loss reports received by the U.S. Bomb Data Center. And of those reports, 15 of them involve public safety agencies, or 3.28%, if you want to do the statistical thing. In addition, during the same five-year period, there have been 66 theft reports received by the U.S. Bomb Data Center where the victims reported themselves as a federal explosive licensee 
or a public safety agency. And of those thefts, 12 of them involved public safety agencies or the 18.18% of the reported thefts. So what this means is this is an issue that definitely impacts our community. So let's get to our panel discussion. We know that many of our members have responsibilities when it comes to storing and handling of explosives. So I'd like to start with you, Haley. Um, can you briefly tell me a little bit about the laws and regulations that pertain to storing and handling of explosives in the United States and the record keeping requirements that go along with it? And in particular, how does it impact the public safety agencies that use explosives as part of their mission? Thanks, Bob. In 1970, Congress passed the Organized Crime Control Act, which tasked ATF with licensing the explosives industry. And it also established storage requirements, which in order to reduce the hazards to the public and property. The act was further strengthened by passage of the Safe Explosives Act of 2002, which required all persons who purchased explosives to be licensed. Uh, the regulation, Title 27, Part 555, Commerce and Explosives, specifically in Subpart K that deals with storage, provides regulatory requirements for magazine construction and tables of distances for proper magazine placement near roads, inhabited buildings, and other magazines. Title 27 also contains Subpart G, which covers record-keeping requirements for the explosives industry. In the law, specifically under 18 U.S.C. Chapter 40, under 842J, states that it will be unlawful for any person to store explosives that does not conform to the requirements of the regulation. What this means is everyone, not just the licensed industry, state and local agencies are not exempt from the requirements to store explosives according to the regulations. I should mention that there is not a requirement by law for everyone to maintain records, just for the licensed industry members only. However, we strongly encourage everyone that stores explosives to maintain records. The reason you might ask would be accountability and traceability, two very important things. I asked the audience this, if you're responsible for the storage of explosives, and you get a call informing you that your magazine has been compromised and your products have been stolen, would you be able to account for all those explosives and provide the investigating authorities with that information? Also, it doesn't have to be a theft. A disaster can occur, such as a wildfire. This is also a good time to bring up that subpart K also requires under 555.201F that any person who stores explosives shall notify the fire authority that has jurisdiction of the type, magazine capacity, and location of each of their storage sites. So obviously we want to protect the fire authority when they come out and fight a fire. Uh, we want them to know what type of explosives and how much are in there. So tell me, Haley, if public safety personnel are exempt from record-keeping requirements, uh, will ATF investigators still work with these folks in terms of helping them be in compliance with these rules and regulations? I, I know when I acquired explosives magazines in the field, um, I was able to contact these investigators, and they helped me right out, right out the gate by doing a site survey uh, before I even had the magazine delivered to the site. And they gave me a lot of guidance on record keeping and also, you know, what my limits were as far as what I could store. Absolutely. ATF has industry operations investigators whose jobs are to inspect the storage and locations of our industry members to determine their compliance with the regulations. So if you would like a site survey to determine if your magazine meets the requirements or what your maximum allowable explosives weight would be, 
based on the tables of distance, our ATF guides would be happy to assist in that. We would also provide guidance on establishing records for your explosives. I know it's not required of you, but I can't stress enough the importance of record keeping, even though our state and local partners are not required by federal law to keep the records. Well, that's good to know, Haley. Uh, thanks for, for sharing that. So moving on to Mike, tell me a little bit, Mike, about what your branch does in relation to explosive storage and handling, uh, especially as it pertains to uh, public safety agencies. Sure, no problem, Bob. Uh, the Explosives Industry Programs branch is responsible for a variety of explosive-related roles, most of which target ATF's regulatory functions. Uh, we're regularly contacted by state and local law enforcement agencies who need assistance navigating ATF's explosive regulations. Unfortunately, our regulations aren't as clear as we'd like them, so we kind of have to shed some light on a lot of the less-than-clear requirements. These questions usually revolve around explosive storage since state and local agencies are required to store their explosives in conformity with ATF storage regulations. So we also help out agencies uh, properly classify explosive materials for storage purposes. Since ATF's explosives classification differs a bit from how DOT classifies explosives for transport, we find that some agencies require assistance on figuring out what type of storage magazine is required for different types of explosive materials. Another larger role we play is approving methods and procedures that aren't specifically allowed by regulation or that deviate from our regulations. Uh, for example, when agencies can't comply with our requirements, say for operational or public safety reasons, we can work with that agency to find a solution that doesn't get in the way of their operational requirements while also ensuring that public safety is maintained. These alternate methods and procedures come in the form of variances, which are basically individual approvals for a particular agency, but they can also come in the form of a ruling. And a ruling is simply, uh, simply allows a specific group of persons, say, a law, law enforcement agencies to deviate from a certain ATF requirement or a group of ATF requirements, provided that they meet the conditions that are specifically listed in the ruling. The agency or agencies who want to use the ruling, uh, they do not need to get ATF's approval to do so, provided they follow those conditions. Mike, uh, can you expound on some of these uh, specific rulings you're talking about that are important to public safety agencies who store and handle explosives? Sure. Um, we have two rulings that were initiated specifically for the law enforcement community. The first is ATF ruling 2009-3. This ruling allows state and local bomb technicians, as well as explosive response teams, to store a limited amount of explosive materials within their unattended official response vehicle, as well as their uh, attended official response vehicles as well. The ruling has several conditions that vary depending on whether the vehicle is parked at an indoor location or at an outdoor location. I guess I also wanted to highlight here that we're currently in the process of updating the ruling. Um, one of the main changes is that we're proposing to increase the allowable net explosives weight officers can store in the vehicles from two and a half pounds to five pounds. Uh, we understood that this was extremely important to ensure first responders have a broader range of explosives available during responses to critical incidents. Uh, in addition to that, we're also clarifying that uh, canine handlers and teams can take advantage of the ruling while we're also expanding the types of magazines and locking system officers can use uh, to secure their explosives. The second ruling is ATF ruling 2012-4. This ruling allows state and local tactical response teams and officers to store a limited number of explosive actuated tactical devices within their official response vehicles. As is the case with ATF ruling 2009-3, this ruling also has uh, several conditions that vary depending on the location of the vehicle. And those are really the only two uh, rulings that were initiated specifically for law enforcement. 
Uh, but we have a lot of other uh, rulings uh, related to storage that can be found on ATF's website, which is uh, www.atf.gov. And uh, just out of curiosity, Mike, um, do you know if many of these laws and regulations in the United States are consistent with worldwide industry standards regarding storage handling and record keeping uh, with explosives? Well, the, the short answer to that is no. Um, ATF's regulations are not very consistent with how other countries handle their explosive requirements. Just for a, a little bit of history, our explosives regulations were implemented in the early 1970s, and many, a majority of them, of our current requirements are exactly the same as they were in the early 70s. So you can imagine that some of our current requirements don't always translate to modern explosives or modern security technologies. We've historically seen other countries implement more robust security and traceability systems. For example, our neighbors up north in Canada, they require electronic surveillance for many of their explosive storage magazines, while the European Union has implemented a very sophisticated identification and traceability program for all EU member countries. Uh, this system actually requires manufacturers of most explosive materials used in civil applications to affix them with a unique alphanumeric code, which basically what we reference as a, a serial number. For various reasons, ATF hasn't been able to change our regulations to keep up with the growth in technology. Um, that's kind of why we have to rely upon variances and rulings to ensure industry members, as well as our, our state and local agencies, uh, to ensure they can conduct operations that were never considered back in the early 70s. Wow, that's, uh, that's really interesting, Mike. Thanks. Uh, I didn't realize the United States was actually so behind uh, other parts of the world in this regard. Well, now, of course, we really need to also get the perspective of someone who has spent quite some time as a local bomb technician, especially his perspective on the topic at hand. Uh, Nick, of course, I hope by saying quite some time, I'm not guilty of offending you about your age. No, Bob, I'm used to it by now. So, Nick, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so they can relate to your perspective on this matter. Well, I've been in law enforcement for over 45 years, virtually all of it. After my first year in bomb disposal, we have a countywide cooperative bomb squad with law agencies from throughout Yolo County, which is just west of Sacramento. And in addition, we are part of a mutual aid training unit comprised of eight area bomb squads from the Sacramento region. Uh, I was our bomb commander starting in the mid-80s and was also the regional bomb unit coordinator for the last 10 years before I retired from Davis BD as a captain. I was asked to return to our squad shortly after I retired, and I am a fully sworn peace officer part-time serving with the West Sacramento PD, assigned as the bomb squad commander and to Homeland Security. I was part of the team that wrote ATF's two-week ADT, Advanced Disposal Technique School curriculum, and I've also taught ADT ever since it started in 2000. I was part of the team that also wrote the ATF Homemade Explosives HME course, and I've taught in that program as well. And Nick, I understand that you have your own personal story uh, regarding this topic. Yes, unfortunately, during the two years we were developing ADT, we experienced a fire in one of our explosives magazines. I tell the story in ADT because it went far beyond just the fire which destroyed the magazine. It was determined to be an arson fire, but it wasn't intended uh, for us as the target, but someone else that occupied our large range area that was city property. The fire got going because of a design flaw 
in our Type 2 magazine. Its wood floor was not clad with metal and thus the fire got going. We did nothing wrong per se, but for me and for us as a bomb squad, the ramifications of the fire were significant. Not only did we need to replace the magazine, which had been donated, and the explosives, but politically the fact that it happened upset our politicians, city officials, and actually raised questions in the community. I then researched other bomb squad uh, magazine accidents and created a block of instruction in ADT, which follows the APF magazine regulations block. I think it puts the regulations and the significant ramifications of a magazine accident into perspective for the students. I present five examples of bomb squad magazine accidents, some preventable, some not. I start with my own and brief each circumstance and the short and long-term impacts of those situations. And so tell me, Nick, uh, as you discuss this topic with the ADD students, uh, what kind of reaction do you get from them? I'm told it's rather sobering. An example would be our former ADT program manager uh, took ADT while he was still in ATF CES in Phoenix. He said the first thing he did when he got back was to get their magazine back in compliance. I hear that all the time from the students. We're all busy and most of us are part-time squads. It's easy to take things for granted, including the management of our magazines. In truth, it has to be an ongoing effort. Once there's an incident, it's too late to go back and fix problems. The magazine accidents block of instruction opens their eyes to the tremendous responsibility we have in maintaining explosives magazines and the significant ramifications when things go wrong, whether it's your fault or not. In each case, the ramifications go far beyond what one would initially imagine. Well, no doubt about that, Nick. So I'd like to take this time now during our, our podcast to give each of our panel members an opportunity to provide some additional guidance about this topic. For lack of a better term, let's call it the two cents portion of the program. I'm sitting with some folks here who have a lot of training experience related to this topic, and I know I value a lot of what they have to say. So this would be a perfect opportunity for them to shed some light to our listeners on something we haven't touched on, or even expound on something uh, one of the other panelists has chimed in about. We'll start with you, Haley. Um, If you could throw your two cents into this matter, what are some things you'd like to share with our listeners? I think for my two cents, I would stress to our state and local agencies the need to develop internal controls as it relates to their storage of explosives products. Definitely with the emphasis on record keeping and conducting regular inventories of your explosives. As I posed the question to the audience earlier, if your magazine was compromised today, would you be able to provide authorities with the list of explosives, the quantity, date, ship codes of what was stolen? If you have records, you should be able to provide that information to investigators and also record it on an ATF theft loss form. Uh, Conducting regular inventories is also crucial to ensure the accuracy and accountability. You you know, and just to follow up on that, uh, Haley, state and local agencies are not exempt from the requirement to report a theft or loss of explosives to ATF within 24 hours. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And the theft loss form can be found on the ATF website, which Mike uh, Alina referenced earlier, www.atf.gov. And just to add, the information that is furnished on the form is provided to the U.S. Bomb Data Center, which enters the information into that. And also, Haley, I understand you're going to be one of our instructors for IBTI for the 
eight-hour IABTI explosive safety certificate course that is uh, going to be delivered for the first time at our upcoming IABTI in-service training and expo in Reno, Nevada this June. Uh, yes, we are going to present a two-hour block on explosives classification, um, magazine construction requirements. We're going to talk about tables and distances and other safety and security concerns. We definitely look forward to providing this presentation and answering any questions. Well, that's great. Uh, what a great training opportunity that's going to be for not only bomb techs and investigators, but anyone who handles, uses, and stores explosives. So how about you, Mike? Uh, maybe you have five cents uh, to offer to our listeners about this topic. Yeah, I guess I'd really like to emphasize to the listeners that if someone is unsure of the requirements, then they shouldn't hesitate to ask the question and find an answer. Uh, we understand that some of these regulatory requirements can be quite burdensome and sometimes get in, can get in the way of doing your actual job. But we also know that these requirements aren't going away anytime soon. We usually find that an agency isn't following the rules or regulations because they simply weren't aware of them. Communication of information is really key. So I'd encourage the listeners who might not know if they're in compliance or who might just want to verify that they're in compliance to reach out to ATF for assistance. We have a lot of regulatory investigators all over the country that can help assist. Um, as we've mentioned a couple times, we have a, a lot of information on our website. And one of the main roles my branch plays is to disseminate regulatory information to whoever needs it. Uh, that's uh, that's good stuff, Mike. Thanks. And Nick, uh, you know, you've, you've been in this business for a long time, so... I'm thinking you're probably good for 25 cents on this matter, considering how long you've been involved with explosives. Uh, what, what would you like to add to this as well, Nick? Well, speaking from personal experience and also from the knowledge gained by researching numerous public safety magazine accidents, talking to the bomb squad commanders that were involved and so forth, you want to do everything in your power to do things right to prevent an incident from happening in the first place or to mitigate as much as possible a bad situation from becoming even worse. And what that means is not being complacent. Use common sense, keep accurate inventory records, including a copy at an offsite, not just in your magazine, in case something happens to the magazine. Escalate your or evaluate your security regularly and fix or at least document, but hopefully fix any problems that you find. Keep what you need to do the job in terms of explosives and don't pack crap things you will never use. And be in compliance with all the regulations that ATF has. Ask ATF for a courtesy inspection because that's what it is, a courtesy inspection, not an enforcement action because we're not regulated. If you're unsure or you want just a second opinion, but don't ignore your magazine issues until it's too late. The public is hypersensitive to police issues and no one's going to be some sympathetic with a lax attitude toward the care and storage of explosives by law enforcement. You know, Nick, uh, do you think a local magazine incident really could impact other bomb squads nationally? Absolutely, post 9-11, it already has happened. In one West Coast magazine incident, where a burglary exposed many ignored problems and lacked practices, the local congressman held hearings because he was said he was so appalled and then wrote a bill that would have had far-reaching impacts on how bomb squads store explosives. It eventually was defeated, but you can't count on that happening again. The public, our officials, and politicians 
expect us to handle explosives correctly. There's no doubt about it. Well, this is all really good information today, and I'm really thankful for it and thankful to my panel for being here today to talk about this. To bring an end to our program, though, today, the IBTI Blast has decided to have a tradition whereby we end the program with a completely off-topic discussion with our participants. I won't ask you anything risque, so it'll be, it'll be family-oriented, but I'd like for each of you to take, uh, to take a moment, share a brief description of something you are involved with that has nothing to do with our profession. So maybe it's a hobby or skill that you enjoy. Maybe you belong to an organization that you enjoy working with. Whatever it is, uh, tell our listeners about it. And, and of course, since I'm moderating and someone's got to break the ice, I'll go ahead and go first. You know, many people in my work environment, they have no idea that I'm actually an avid chess player. I played sparingly when I was younger. But over the past 15 years, I've played and coached chess, scholastic chess, quite frequently. Very proud of the fact that I've coached uh, a lot of kids, and and they've actually competed uh, in competitive scholastic chess, and that teams that I've coached uh, over the years have even won nine state team championships. In addition, I was very fortunate to be part of a committee that developed the uh, Boy Scouts Chess Merit Badge. And so if you have a, have a son or now even a daughter uh, in scouting and, they ha- and you happen to have a copy of the Boy Scout Chess Merit book, book look in the back under acknowledgments, you'll even see my name. Nowadays, though, the vast majority of my chess is played online on the chess.com website. There's, uh, there's over 22 million people from around the world who play chess on this site, uh, myself included. And of course, now that I've gone and totally uh, outed myself as a consummate nerd in front of everybody... Uh, let's hear from you, Haley. Okay. Well, I don't have anything as lofty as chess to discuss, but I have recently discovered in Hunts Vegas, which is my nickname for Huntsville, a place that you and your friends can go and throw axes and drink craft beer. They have lanes set up with targets, and you and your friends can make it as competitive as you want or just do it for fun. And I've taken a lot of uh, ATF employees there and other state and locals that help contract instruct and even students uh, they have a great time so if you're ever in Las Vegas make it a go-to place no special skills required or obviously I couldn't do it but it is fun uh, I also enjoy traveling and I'm looking forward to a big trip at the end of the year to Scotland and Ireland and England Wow. So you say that there's a place where you can drink beer and throw like real axes. What a wonderful combination. I'd, I'd like to see the insurance bill for that company. Uh, but uh, what about you, Mike? Tell us tell us something about you. Sure. Well, kind of similar to uh, Haley, my spare time isn't taken up with anything as uh, intellectually stimulating as chess. So, And I guess it probably is just the opposite. If you can't find me at a, a local brewery or uh, maybe a wine shop in town, then you're probably likely find me running around the Huntsville area. Uh, It's funny because not too long ago, I was that person who just couldn't understand why somebody would voluntarily run just for the sake of running. But, you know, I kind of hit 40 and uh, thought I needed a little more uh, heavy impact uh, activity. So once I started, I got completely hooked. And it's funny, just last month, I ran uh, 160 miles for the month, which is my highest monthly total uh, to date. So I'm pretty proud of that. And, uh, well on my way to uh, 200 miles. So um, one of the other benefits of running 
um, is that I get to listen to a, a lot of audiobooks. Uh, you can imagine that's a, a lot of hours of running. And I can tell you there's nothing like listening to the Game of Thrones while you're running through the woods. And uh, not to mention, all those miles give me another good excuse to just have one more beer at the end of the day. Well, don't forget, Mike, now you can even listen to yourself on a podcast while you're running. So you got that going for you. Um, Nick, uh, lastly, let's hear from you on this. Uh, tell us something uh, interesting. Well, the, the question I get asked all the time is, uh, how, why do you stay so busy when you're retired? Going back and forth from the East Coast to the West Coast, doing some teaching in Canada for a long time, doing Mythbusters, and then still responding to UOD calls. How does your wife put off with all that, they ask? Well, we've been married 35 years, but... She's never known me without EOD in our life. And uh, I love being busy and giving back to the profession. It's given me so many challenges as well, so much enjoyment. So I guess, Bob, uh, you're a chess nerd and I'm an EOD nerd. Well, and you have a whole nation that's uh, very grateful to you, to you for that, Nick. Uh, nobody's grateful at all to me for playing chess, so thank you for that. Well, that's it for our program today. Uh, I want to thank Haley McGrew and Michael Lena and Nick Concolino for being here, making this such an informative and worthwhile program. If you come to Reno in June, you can even sign up for the full eight-hour certificate course about this topic, and that's not a bad credential to have if you're responsible for storing explosives. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the IBTI Blast. Be sure to let us know if there's any topic out there in our community that you'd love to hear a podcast about. Take care and be safe, everyone. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the IABTI Blast podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of IABTI. The IABTI is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of the information contained in the podcast series.